Devin, I have a question for you before we get started with this episode. Yeah, what is it, Tyler? Do you think it's ever okay to tell a lie? Yes, obviously. <laughs> I didn't ask if you ever tell a lie. Oh, I never would, but I, in, in theory, sure, sure. So you're okay with lying? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm okay with lying, but I can think of scenarios in which it might be appropriate or really the best thing for, well, definitely the best thing for me, but sometimes it's the best thing for the other person <laughs> to not, or maybe not to like bald face lie to them, but maybe to like not tell the whole truth because it would hurt them. Okay. So if it's in their best interest. Yeah. Right. Is that a good rule of thumb? I don't know. It, it's tricky, right? Uh, and in and in medicine, we talk about this, right? Is it ever okay to lie to a patient or is it ever okay to lie to their family members? And I think your gut reaction is like, no, of course not. We need to be truthful. But I think there are sticky situations in which maybe it's okay to lie or deceive sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it. once we start trying to understand when and under what circumstances it's okay to lie, it gets complicated really, really quickly. So... Mm -hmm. um, we're going to talk today with one with a friend of ours, uh, Abe Brummett, and he is, kind of has a specialty, special interest at least in deception, especially in the in the healthcare context. And uh, it's, I'm looking forward to the the conversation with Abe about lying to patients and family members. Yeah, let's hope he's uh, at least truthful in how he talks about it with us. Bioethics for the People, where we discuss bioethics and complex questions in medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stahl. And I am joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. So welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Today we are talking with a good friend of the podcast, Abe Brummett, who's an assistant professor at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. Uh, he also wanted me to tell you he loves Civil War reenactment. So hopefully that'll work its well, way into and, the case. And, well, and I think I should further clarify that I fought, I fought for the North. And that's okay. usually like this very next question that it people is. ask. Gonna be, like, yeah. I definitely fought for the North. Okay. So. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You're allowed to stay on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Abe, this uh, season we are talking to a bunch of different clinical ethicists about some of the cases that stick with them and the, that they feel haunted by or come to mind quite often when they're thinking about tough cases. So. Uh, you, you have a case that you want to talk through with us. Yeah. So um, I kind of have a, a couple of cases if, if we have time for it, but I, I wanted to start off with, you know, this one case that came up pretty early on, I guess, in my time as a, as a full-time clinical ethics consultant. Um, and it was pretty straightforward. It was, you know, I was on the ethics committee and these physicians came to the committee and they said, look, we had a patient um, come into the hospital a few weeks ago and had a miscarriage. 
And um, we have a program at our hospital for low-income patients. We offer them this service um, where we bury the remains of the miscarriage. There's this little graveyard that we have down in the city. Bury the remains there, and um, we put up a plaque. They give us a name. You know, we put the the name on the plaque, and they have somewhere where they can go and remember this child, almost child, I guess, that they had. And this this patient accepted this. She, she was very grateful to have that. And we were like, okay, great. And then in the intervening time, uh, one of our staff members accidentally incinerated the remains. No. Oh, oh no. Is it, so there's a process by which human remains, uh, not just remains, but just like biological material, right? Goes through a, a, not sterilization process, but actually like gets disposed of in a, in a appropriate way, correct? Yeah, that was my understanding was that like these, the fetal remains were somehow mistaken as just maybe being some other kind of bio tissue or something. It was just disposed of in a, through a different process. Yeah, okay, interesting. Oh. Um. Well, and to make things even a little bit more challenging, it wasn't just that the remains were incinerated. Um, we didn't actually discover that this had happened until like a few weeks after it actually happened. So it was like we didn't have any ashes. We didn't have anything like it was just totally gone. Hmm. Um, so the so the physicians came to the ethics committee with what question? Right. This. What is, how is this an ethics question? <laughs> well, so there, here's what they say. So they come to the ethics committee and they explain the situation and they say, can't we just put up the plaque and, you know, do, do we have to, um, you know, tell the patient that there are no ashes there? Um, and can we just put up the plaque and let her have a place to you know, of remembrance and, you know, sort of the original kind of reasons for doing it. Like what good does it comes essentially of like telling her this fact? Um, that's what they came to the ethics committee with. They asked us this question. Hmm. Wow. Now, this and, is, and, this is not like any case I've, this is so unique, Abe. Like what a unusual, I can see why you brought this to us have never even come close to having a, a situation like this. Um, yeah. Tyler. Yep. No, no, this no. is a new one. Okay. So, um, so just to, just to, so just to, just to paint the picture. So at the ethics committee, the physicians are basically asking whether or not they have to disclose this, whether they can, they have to tell the, the parents of the, 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 the fetus that, that died through miscarriage, whether or not, actual remains of the the fetus are included in this memorial thing so it's actually even a little bit more than that right so it's it's not just withholding the fact that we disposed of the remains it's actually putting up a plaque you know that kind of says something like you know whatever the name like remains here or whatever right so it's mm. it's um you know, this is one of the things that we talked about, right? Because some of the people on the committee sort of described it as just like a withholding thing. And other people were like, well, it actually seems to be a little bit more deceptive than that. The reason why that, you know, 
sort of matters and this is kind of like bioethicists who write about this stuff in the literature they draw this distinction between like lying deception and non-lying deception and non-lying deception would be like just withholding something right um to sort of induce or maintain like a false belief in the target you just don't say something but of course lying deception is like an actual act where you, you literally say like something more deceptive than a mere withholding right like they are buried here right yeah mm -hmm. um and the reason so it's it's we tend to think it's harder to justify um acts of lying deception versus non-lying deception but both still difficult to justify right uh, for our listeners abe can you just what would be a good reason right why might we deceive in either sense a patient i can see somebody saying well doctors should never deceive patients right um so there people kind of list a lot of different reasons for why we might want to deceive and it's this is one of the things i think is really interesting about this topic which some of my other cases might get us into but it's not always just about the deceiving the patient in this first case that you know i'm describing it is but there's lots of situations of sur deceiving surrogates, deceiving non-surrogate family, um, deceiving, you know, we distinguish between patients who have decision-making capacity and patients who don't, like that seems to matter to our sort of like moral deception calculus. But to answer your question about what kinds of reasons, there's basically two kinds of reasons. Um, the first kind of reason is about some consequence some avoiding some bad consequence that might come about from telling them like they would get really sad or you know really depressed or something like that if we told or even worse maybe even some bad physical consequence like they might harm themselves or someone else might harm them uh, as a result of the information um which i can give some examples of that in a bit if we want um but the other kind of reason to engage in deception is what we would call like autonomy-based reasons. So these, these are reasons that involve like, I say, upholding, augmenting, or protecting a patient's autonomy. So what are those three things? So the first thing, upholding a patient's autonomy, that's like we might deceive a patient if they've asked us to. Mm -hmm. So this sometimes happens. Uh, in the clinic, right? Don't tell me whether or not I have cancer, or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, augmenting a patient's autonomy is when w the target of our deception is aimed at potentially restoring the patient's ability to think about their own decisions, like uh, putting a psych medication in some food or something and giving it to them. And it's like, oh, it's just juice, but it's, you know, it has something that might bring them back to a baseline where they, they might have their decision-making capacity again. And the third kind uh, protecting their autonomy, I think of this as like, um, um, if there's, this, this might occur like if we're going to deceive other people for the sake of our patients you know, confidential medical information or something like that. I've got some really good uh, examples of that that we can talk about. But those are, but just to read, those are basically the two kinds of reasons, like reasons about consequences or reasons about the patient's autonomy that uh, might motivate us to deceive in some cases. 
So, A, would you put this in the first category then about the consequences of knowing the truth? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. I yeah. have a very immediate reaction about what should be done. But like my gut says something really strong. But I'm curious, Tyler, if you have the same impulse <laughs> yeah. or if this is like hard for you. Uh, yeah, interesting. So um, uh, this is I no, I think this is really complicated because do you, well, I don't I don't think I mean, I do think it's complicated, but like I just will say out loud, my gut says absolutely do not tell her like, oh, I, my gosh, oh, really? really? I did oh. not think that's what you were going to say I at didn't all. Yeah, no, well, I'm trying to, I, I guess I'm thinking, my first reaction is, what would I want if I were this patient? And there's no way I would want them to tell. I'd be so mad that they told me, and I'd rather not know. Devin, Devin, hold on. I have to just tell you something really quick. Okay. My, I had to put my dog down a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, and mm -hmm. she was like, you know, one of the closest most beautiful relationships i've ever had in my life i had it for 12 years and she you know we went through all kinds of stuff and all i have left of her now is a box of ashes on my shelf mm -hmm. um and when this happened to me just a few weeks ago it really got me thinking about this case again right because and i can't wait to tell you what we actually did but um <laughs> but um it just really like i you know, if something had happened to Lily, you know, in the interim and what they gave me in that box was not Lily's ashes. I, I don't know. Like that would be that would just be so cruel. I feel like to say that to me, to tell it's, me that it wasn't her. Yeah. But, but I, I know people who think that's like crazy that they, they're like, oh, we should definitely tell them or, you know, we have or actually this is the way that they'll say it we have like a duty to tell them this. Like we almost like, and, but it, then it becomes like about them, right? Like they have to yeah. get, they have to discharge this moral duty that they feel like they have to make themselves feel better. Yeah. Not, that's and what I think not it like would be. thinking about like the other person. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nobody would, I don't just don't think anybody would want to know that. And like, it, it's so outlandish that they, it wouldn't even cross their mind. Right. So I, I just, yeah, I think don't, my gut says don't tell her unless you could convince me that it's a good idea but oh no i wouldn't want to know i wouldn't want to know so can i tyler do you want to uh respond to this but i want to say some things that might change devin's mind yeah okay. so yeah I, I i agree with you abe that it was i was expecting devin to come down on the side of of transparency and honesty <laughs> and forthrightness like how could we even contemplate not telling somebody that they're the remains of, of what they perceive to be their child is no longer that there. Um, but so when I, when I get these, these tough cases, like we've never, like I've never seen before, I, I try to work through in my head, like, okay, who is going to benefit and who is going to be harmed? And I think that I would come down on, on the side of there is very little benefit in telling anybody about this. Right. And all there is is harm. And when you're doing something that the consequence is merely harm, then you got to be really, really careful in that situation. So that, that's how I was going through it in my mind. But I'm fascinated. Can I mm -hmm. can I just tell you all like one other feature of this case that I think made it extra tough was that our legal team was actually consulted before they came to the ethics committee. Oh, interesting. And the legal team 
said it would be permissible to not tell the patient. Like there was no legal obligation Mm -hmm. to tell the patient about what had happened. And in our sort of like deliberation as a committee, we looked at our medical error policy to see if it possibly had something, you know, to say about this. And it, I loved what it said. There's actually like a taxonomy of like different kinds of errors, like errors that could harm other people. Like what Tyler was just saying, like errors that we need to fix or they might harm other people in the future. Like that kind of thing is like, you, we have a very strong, you know, obligation to disclose and, you know, rethink our systems and make sure that those kinds of errors don't occur again, you know, but for this kind of error, um, it was so like random, you know, it wasn't like the result of some systematic flaw that we had it. But anyway, the, the point is that the policy essentially said probably disclose that we, we should <laughs> probably <laughs> disclose in situations like this. So Super just helpful. to add those layers of, of the legal consultation, you know, basically saying it would be okay if we do this one way or the other, like there's no legal obligation ethics. What do you think? Yeah. Right. And then going to the policy and the policy sort of, you know, saying something that was also left open the possibility, which, you know, I think of judgment in, in cases like this, right? That's why it's probably yeah. disclose. Interesting. I, you know, I'm not a risk manager, but I, I would assume that risk management would say don't disclose. Um, I think actually in, in our system, they're the same office. Mm. So like legal is saying that to us is like, both saying like okay. they're not like separate entities where mm -hmm. we are um, i mean there is a risk i would imagine if i were a risk manager which i'm not i'm an ethicist but i can imagine risk actually saying if she were to find out some other way that would put the hospital at risk like of her suing more so than if you had told her directly but what are the odds i mean what are the odds that she would find out from somebody okay so, so Right. So to that exact point, this is what oh, no. I wanted to say about it. <laughs> well, okay. So we have to remember, so this is being brought before the ethics committee and it's being discussed. Hey, why'd you put it in quotes? It's a real ethics committee, right? Well, no, I did Yeah. I, I, I just, I guess I was, I don't know why I put it in quotes. I'm just saying like, it's being brought before a lot of people okay. and okay. a lot of eyeballs are like looking at the, uh, looking at like what we're doing. So will you briefly describe the ethics committee like it, at that institution? Like what's it look like comprised of? Is it huge? Is it small? At, at this point, it was basically across many hospitals and the people who were discussing this case were sort of like teams of representatives from all these different hospitals like happened to be on this call talking about this case. So I would say that the um the visibility of the case you know it had been discussed by the clinicians you know obviously legal and risk have been talking about it no question like other clinicians involved i'm sure have been talking amongst themselves about what to do now here we're talking about it we're talking about it with staff from across you know multiple different hospitals and they'll probably talk to other people about it yeah and so it raises this um question about the visibility of what we say as an ethics committee. And I actually, um, do you know this, This uh, I just actually just learned about this recently, but this Catholic idea of scandal, mm -hmm. right? So like maybe Devin help me out, but, I, but here's how I understand scandal is like, 
even if you do something that's the right thing, if there's a chance that it could lead others to do wrong things, that's scandal. And that's like bad, right? That's bad, yep. Yeah, so just a little bit of context. So that's like a, uh, not a principle, but it's an idea that's pretty common within Catholic healthcare. Um, And so it's this idea to try to avoid being associated with things or behaviors or other institutions that the Catholic theology or the Catholic healthcare application of the theology would find abhorrent, right? So it's like uh, the idea of avoid even the 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 appearance of evil, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like even if you thought through it and and it was even if it was something that was permissible on Catholic moral teaching, I think the worry is that if it's has a lot of nuances to it, that if the word kind of got out, people could easily sort of misunderstand what had happened and then think that Catholic moral teaching teaches A when it actually teaches not A or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of got me thinking about that, like in the context of our own institutions, right? Like what's going to happen if the ethics committee, you know, says, oh yeah, we could deceive this patient and lots of all of our ethicists see this and, you know, maybe many people in our institutions hear about, oh, the ethics committee said it was okay to deceive patients or something. Um, and, and so I just, so I guess, Devin, I wonder like, what does this matter to you? Like in your, yeah. in your thinking, like, what does this do to you? Yeah. I've never thought about this. Cause normally when you do like a case discussion with a bunch of ethicists, there's also a teaching component to it. So you're not only trying to hash out the case in front of one another so that you can figure out the right thing to do, you're also helping to educate other ethicists who are still learning and training or who maybe haven't had a case like this about what the right thing to do is. And so Mm -hmm. you're also establishing precedent. So I hear what you're saying. It's unusual to have a, I mean, in the case of deception, I've never thought about this and I'll probably regret saying it as soon as I do. You almost don't want to have those public conversations and involve a lot of people because the odds of that becoming more widely known and getting back to a patient or even just becoming precedent for future cases is a lot stronger. And in cases then maybe when you're considering whether it's appropriate to deceive, you keep it to a small group of people having the conversation for reasons that I think you've just named. Yeah, right. But so it, so there's like layers of deception here now, right? So it, it, what basically what we're saying, and I, I think I completely agree with you, is that like small groups, experienced ethicists, you know, people who who understand why we said what we said and not like, you know, broadcasting it across the whole hospital. So Mm -hmm. that almost feels like just a second layer of deception. But again, I think it's a a form that I would be okay with because I understand like why we're doing it. But, you know, like for example, at my hospital, we do this thing every month where we like bring cases that we were consulted on and like, you know, lay them out there and say, here's how we thought about it. and like. You know, we have a hundred people come and and you know attend these things from all across the system, and like doing this case at a session like that seems different from like doing, I don't know, maybe more more bread and butter type cases or something. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, like I hear what you're saying, and I think it's right, and I think it's another layer of deception, and in, in some sense, by the ethics committee, if I'm being honest. Yeah. 
it, it's so often that when I read, so I, I'm involved in a consultation and I give some recommendations, even sometimes like document my recommendations that I'll go back and look a couple of days later. And almost inevitably, if there's a quote that says, per the ethics committee or the ethics committee said, and then they fill in the blank, it's almost always wrong. It's almost no. always like not <laughs> what I said, right? Or if somebody ever said, well, Dr. Gibbs said, blah, blah, blah. Like it's almost never the case that they accurately represent what we said. Mm. Not good. Here's the thing. I guess this this was a case that um, kind of like blew my mind a little bit as a clinical ethicist. Like I, it really bothered me a lot when it happened because I'll tell you, our ethics committee's response was, you should absolutely tell this patient. Hmm. And it was wow. as though it was as though there could be no other option. Wow. And, I'm surprised by and, that. Yeah. And I was very new at the time and I didn't want to, you know, go against a lot of the senior ethicists and things who were on the call. But I also felt myself thinking like, I wouldn't even know how to articulate my argument very well. Like I have just never even really thought about deception that much. All I knew was that it felt like I really didn't want to tell this patient and I could kind of come up with some reasons, but I didn't feel like I had very developed thinking about, you know, how to make my case or like what, what features of the case to point out if I was trying to persuade someone that they, you know, should also, um, deceive the patient in this case. And it's kind of like taken me on this whole journey to think more about deception. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I, I feel like it's much easier for me to, to think I'm still developing my thinking about it, but I've been thinking about deception a lot now as a result of this case. But, you know, at the time I just didn't feel well equipped, I guess, to like make my case to the committee. So I think we ended up telling her. Oof. Oof. <laughs> yeah right yeah did um and who got that privilege who got to be in the room to tell her i don't know i you know as is often the case i think with a lot of our clinical ethics stuff like we don't see the actual doing like we don't yeah. go and see the actual extubation or whatever right so yeah i didn't witness this either hmm. well i trying to think like who would <clears throat> So the, I don't know, would it be like the attending OB? Is that, is that her doctor or like the, the head of the pathology lab where the, like the actual mistake happened or the person who is actually in charge of the, not the ceremony, but like the actual like mo memorial thing. I don't know. I'm just trying to, trying to think who, what, once the decision is made that it ought to be disclosed, then the next question is, okay, who has to do that? And I'm not sure where it falls naturally, right? Seems like it'd be risk. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they sent her a letter. Like, I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I mean, as odd as that might have been, like, I have no idea about how that mm -hmm. actually went down. Mm -hmm. I, I really um, appreciate your response to, to this, Devin, because, you know, I'll, I'll say in addition to the ethics committee, it's seeming so obvious to them that we should tell the patient, right? And, I, and me not feeling that way. There was even a, a, a mentor that I had at the time who I respected a lot and I called about this case. And and they also told me like, as though it was just a slam dunk case where you should, there's no question that you should tell, you know, the patient wow. about about what happened. 
maybe my instincts are super wrong. I, don't, I just think well, my first reaction was to put myself in her place and I wouldn't want to know. Um, that's how I feel. Yeah. But, well, but okay. So you had this, like this really tough case that led you to think more about deception. So do you have like a follow-up case that also that where oh, you got to like yeah. use all your oh my thinking? gosh. Yes, <laughs> please. Like I have so many cases, like dozens of these cases that, um, uh, excited to share more we well, got 10 you. minutes so oh know, boy um <laughs> okay so hmm um okay so let me tell you about this other situation that um comes up sometimes in the hospital so sometimes we have family where you know someone needs a kidney um sometimes a family member will be a match but they'll tell you know one of our uh donor advocates in private that they don't actually want to donate their kidney, but that they could never tell their family that they just don't want to donate, right? Like that would be, they could never, their family would never understand. I mean, it could cause so much family disruption and turmoil. Again, the consequences, right, of, of the truth could be so devastating for this family. And what I've learned is that what we do as a hospital in these situations is we write a letter and give it to the uh, donor that's that's very official looking and says that they're not medically appropriate to be a donor. Mm. So the letter then, you know, allows them to go and just be like, show the family like, oh gosh, you know, I, I got this letter, not medically appropriate. Um, I guess I can't, uh, you know, sorry, I can't be a donor. I mean, I'm sure they're, you know, generally sad that there's this whole messed up thing going on where someone needs a kidney in the first place but but yeah we'll write this letter to say you know not medically appropriate the way that we justify it is we say well we didn't lie this is what our organ you know people say say we didn't lie because if a patient is not willing then they're also not met like being medically appropriate means being a physiologic match but also willing mm-hmm Right. So they sort of use that, you know, I still feel like, again, if we're being honest, like we're clearly being deceptive. I, at least I think that that's deceptive, right? Because what we're playing on is that the family won't interrogate that phrasing of not medically appropriate too much. Mm-hmm. Right. If they started saying things like, well, what, what test did they fail? Or, you know, tell us maybe they had a doctor in the family and started inquiring more about like the, the testing that they did. Right. But I wanted to bring this case up because of the way that it applies to another case that I had not that long ago. Um, and I wanted to see what you all thought about it, because I kind of used the same strategy hmm. um, or, or was considering using the same strategy. So the case was that we, ha- we had this patient who was clearly dying in the hospital um, and he had a peg tube in. Um, and he did not want this peg tube because he knew it was uh, maybe extending his his life and he didn't want his life to be extended. So he would say, take this peg tube out and we would take it out. And then his family would come and his family would see that we had taken out the peg tube and they would get so angry about this peg tube because they felt like he was giving up and they felt like if you're in a hospital, you should be taken care of. And part of being taken care of is you know, like eating and getting like proper nutrition and hydration. And so they would basically like browbeat him for like an hour. And then they, and then, you know, 
that we'd go back in there and the patient would be like, I guess let's put the peg tube back in and we'd put it back in. And this kind of happened like a few times where he would tell us to take it out, we'd take it out, the family would come in. So when I got consulted on this case, I thought about using this kidney strategy with this patient and saying, you know, saying the doctors, like, what if you said to the family that it was no longer medically indicated? Like, we're the ones who are going to, we, the doctors, are going to decide that the the feed t- feeding tube is no longer appropriate because it's just, you know, and there is a point at which feeding tubes become inappropriate and like actually start actively harming a patient, but the patient wasn't quite there yet. Uh, but basically the deception was, what if we just said that he was? And, and sort of took that decision, you know, sort of redirected the family's ire onto like, you know, our staff who are, you know, more willing to, to manage it in order to protect, you know, what the patient wanted. Ooh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So would you ask the patient for his consent to oh, tell yeah. the family that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that we would, you know, describe to the family what... Um, yeah, ask the patient, get the consent, and then and then do the same type of strategy like the kidney situation. Uh, um, and I'll it. tell you, can but let me tell you why we didn't do it. <laughs> this is what my colleagues talked me out of this one, and it was on this one point. Hmm. They said, look, the reason why this works with organ transplantation is because family is a lot less likely to ask a lot of pointed follow-up questions if they receive a letter that someone is not a match for an organ. Yeah. But they felt like in the context of something that's more like intuitive to families, like just food and nutrition, that they would have a lot of follow-up questions for the doctor as to why it was no longer appropriate. And it might, I don't know, like how would that conversation go, right? And might it like sort of back the doctor into needing to, lie or like further iterations of deception that might kind of, you know, become a much bigger thing than, than we might've originally intended. I don't know if you all think that's a good reason or not, but that was the sort of way that my colleagues pushed back on me and made me say, okay, Abe, you know, get get your deception stuff under control, but not in this case, right? Yeah. It, it, that reminds me of a case that I had. It was kind of similar where it was a patient who came from a family um, that were that were Jehovah's Witnesses. And he wanted and his I don't I think he had some sort of bleeding disorder and standard of care would have been a, a transfusion that him, his family and his religious community would reject on theological grounds. And so he was deteriorating and, and desperately needed this blood transfusion. Um, but uh, was refusing it. But then when his family was out of the room, he was like, hey, guys, he's like, do the blood transfusion, but don't tell my family. And so when my family's here, I'm going to refuse it. I'm going to I'm going to follow like the, the teachings of the church and stuff. But when they're gone, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, like save my life. And we mm-hmm. did that. And the the family took that as a reaffirmation of their faith. And it was a faith promoting experience. And. Um, it was like on social media about the legitimacy of this belief and stuff. So it, even afterwards, the deception, the ramifications of the deception kind of, you know, spiraled out in different ways that we didn't quite appreciate at the time. We had an exact case like that, uh, Tyler, at one of my previous hospitals 
um, where we recommended not only that we transfuse the patient, but that we do so deceptively, right? So that like we try to do it at night or after visiting hours, like when the family was not around to see it and that we work really hard to be sure we take all the evidence, you know, out of the room before the family comes in, um, which gets into another aspect of these cases. Like when you're thinking through these cases, like one thing to ask yourself is how many people need to coordinate in order to pull off whatever it is that you're trying to pull off. And, and if you need a lot of people, you know, working together to coordinate something like this, that would not mean you shouldn't do it, but just that you should, you should have an even stronger reason for doing it. Right. Versus if you, if you're just like one person who can kind of easily do it without needing to involve others. That makes sense. Like how practical is mm -hmm. the deception and is it going to require more deception in the future in order right. to make the deception more plausible? You know, these things seem sort of like, oh, well, it's either right or it's wrong. But I don't think that's quite the case. Like, I do think there for the Jehovah's Witness case, to me, that sounds perfectly appropriate because I know like what it can mean to that person to be ousted from their not only their family, but their religious community. There's severe consequences to that or there potentially could be. And so if you think about the trajectory of their life, you know, that it's really important both to save their life, but then to maintain face in the community is so important. With your case, Abe, I, I see where the doctors are coming from, though, because I agree that I, we often have families. When you say a peg tube is futile or these continued feedings are futile or medically inappropriate, families almost always come back and say, well, have you tried everything, mm -hmm. right? Like, what do you mean? Like, explain it to us. They often will ask those follow-up questions because not feeding somebody feels so emotionally laden to them. Right. It's, it's hard to imagine that actually they wouldn't ask those questions. So it makes the deception really impractical or implausible to carry out. Yeah. Um, and can I just ask Tyler one one quick question, a, a follow-up question about his case? Suppose when the when the family came in the next day, the wife was a little suspicious about the husband's improved condition. And she actually approached someone on the medical staff or approached the physician and asked them directly, did you provide a blood transfusion to my husband. Mm -hmm. In a situation like that, we've, we've thought about these a lot. It, it seems like there's, there's basically two options that the doctor would have. One option would be to defer. Mm -hmm. And by defer, I mean say, well, you need to ask your husband. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. The other option, I mean, I guess three options. One option is you could tell the truth. That's, that seems wrong. Uh, another option is you could lie. So you could either defer, lie, or disclose, mm -hmm. right? And um, disclosing seems really wrong to me in that case. And in fact, even deferral seems to essentially be a, a roundabout way of disclosing, right? There's because no the mere, way to say that. that doesn't there's say no way to say it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So to me, this is one of those cases where like normally the burden of proof is on the one who wants to deceive Right. I feel like in cases like Tyler, what you just described, I, I feel like the burden of proof is on the person who wants to defer mm -hmm. or even tell the truth. Right. Because they're doing like what they would be doing to this patient is so would have such, you know, as you were just describing all these terrible ramif social ramifications, ramifications for their marriage, like all this stuff. Right. That to 
tell the truth or to even defer in a case like that because I don't know, you feel like you always need to tell the truth or whatever your reason would be. I just, I would be really mad at you, I think. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, I just, so it, it almost seems like the burden of proof flips in that mm. case, which is what's so interesting to me about yeah. what you just described. Yeah. And actually the, the point where we thought that the deception was really going to go badly was there was at least one, maybe two nurses who were outraged about the deception. And they said, I'm going to walk in there and tell them because, no. yeah, no. but and not just like I have this duty to truth at all costs. But when it was clear that the patient's recovery was going to be used as faith promoting it in oh, that community, they, they wanted to nip that in the bud. So that was like a further offense to the to the, you know, the rightness of the, the, the truthfulness of the, the situation. So. Yeah, but again, like as a clinical ethicist, we never actually see like how it plays out. But uh, yeah, it such a deception is such an interesting topic. I I the layers and layers that I've stumbled onto with this stuff, like in, as I'm continuing to collect more and more cases, is is just endlessly fascinating. So Abe loves uh, lying. <laughs> Abe loves lying. Yes. Um, well, you got one more quick thought. Um, or, or case that brings up something different. Oh, well, I'll just give you a twist on the Jehovah's witness one. Uh, okay. another twist, I suppose. Um, we've, we actually found a, an OBGYN residency program and we were talking telling them about our just work and deception. And they told us that they outright teach their residents to lie, uh, in situations where, um, you know, suppose they have a female patient who has a, a partner who may be abusive or th there may be a lot of tension between them about whether or not she can have future children. And they may be having a big argument about this. And she wants like a tubal ligation or something, but he doesn't want it because, you know, he wants more children um, to do the tubal ligation. And if the partner, you know, accosts them in the hallway or something or asks them directly to say, no, we didn't do it just to mm. lie straight up, you know, mm. which it, it gets back to the Jehovah's Witness stuff. I think maybe really the only difference is um, it involves potentially more physical harms than kind of like the social harms within the Jehovah's Witness case, if you have like domestic violence concerns. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think if there's, well, yeah. Oh man, I do not think of myself as somebody who's like, yeah, deceiving people is really good. But in every one of your cases, Abe, I'm like, yep, that seems like the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I just to just to clarify, I think the vast majority of the time, you know, we have a very strong duty to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. This rabbit hole of these deception cases that I've gone down in the last year or so is is about that little sliver of cases where that doesn't seem quite right, mm -hmm. and it really exploring that space and and that's just really opened up all kinds of uh so just to be clear the vast majority of the time i think it's good to be truthful with our <laughs> patients and one another i'm interested in in those those ex exceptions and what makes them exceptions mm -hmm. great cases yeah thanks Abe. thanks this was a lot of fun yeah this was fun these are great yeah these are great cases that really get you like <laughs> oh like having to justify why lying is okay yeah it's yeah that's sticky because you know that there's those, I just think people who are like, you must tell the truth always are like bad people. I know. I, okay. So look, <laughs> someone is going to say, someone is going to say this, aren't they going to lose trust, you know, in us if we deceive? Honestly, 
one of my responses is that is that if I find out that you're the kind of person who says we always have to tell the truth in all situations, that's going to make me distrust you. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's to me, that's almost like a that's just a oh, really a bizarre uh, character trait. But we just don't admit we just don't often say that out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But if I knew someone really felt that way, that would be very strange to me. I, I think it would make me trust them less, actually. Or like not want to be around them. Because they're going to like be brutally on- Like people like that tend to want to be brutally honest about mm. everything. Like, yeah. no, I must tell the truth. Yeah, or like they're very self-righteous. Yeah, it's like a pride. Yeah, 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 right, right. Super self-righteous. I always think about, Abe, the, um, I read this, a study once where they asked men if they would want to know that they weren't the father of their children, like the biological father of their own children. And like the overwhelming majority of men would not want to know. Yeah. And I think that that's right. Like when I ask men that, Typically, they'll say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to know. And so when you get these cases, because apparently there's like an outrageous number of <laughs> times that you find out that the father's not really the father. And it's like, oh, no, what do you do? It's like, no, you do not tell. Yeah. I just think there's like no question in my mind that there's like be really a sliver of cases where you'd, you'd have to say something because it's so tied up in the genetics of whatever they're looking for. But for the most part, no. But, I... but also because men don't want to know. Would you guys want to know? No. And and Devin, uh, not to keep going here, but I mean, there was another case like that I had about a year ago of a mom who wanted us to secretly test her son to see who his dad was because she wasn't Mm -hmm. quite sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And she really wanted to find out so that she could have that conversation with him if there was even a conversation to be had before he like went off and did a you know, everyone's doing like ancestry and 23 and me now. And, it, yeah. you know, like, it's just no big deal. And she mm-hmm. was afraid that at some point he would go off and do that and then find out this big secret. And maybe there wasn't even a secret to know, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe the man who raised him was in fact his dad, but she wasn't totally sure. So did you do it? Uh, we said no. No, I would have, I would have wanted to do okay. it. <laughs> okay. Okay. We said no, but there's so many interesting, so, but, but we were, we really acknowledged that like, had she come to us when he was five or something and asked the exact same question, I think we would have done it. We would have said to do it. If he was but, a kid. But this yeah. was a 17 year old, like oh. very, had a really good relationship with his pediatrician, known him his whole life, like really mm-hmm. smart kid. And we just didn't feel right about doing what, what we said was, oh yeah, we'll do this. If he comes to his next appointment, you know, knowing that we're doing it and agrees to have it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. I had almost a similar situation just come up a couple of weeks ago. It was a case that someone was telling me about, but it was a a mother who wanted her daughter to be um, tested, basically a, a urine drug screen, but didn't want her to know that she that she was being tested. But I think they did it. I think they did this the, the talk screen or the drug screen without. Because they were already collecting urine, and so they said, "Yeah, sure, we'll just do it and tell you." And I was like, oh, "I don't know." <laughs> so I will. I'll just say, I'll just this one last thing. Erica and I, uh, we we created like this framework for thinking through these cases because it's one thing to just like collect all these cases and talk about it, and it's really interesting, right? But we wanted to actually try to help people, give them like discrete questions, and like sort of see the terrain. Mm-hmm. of deception a little bit more because the more we thought about these cases there were patterns that we started to recognize um and you know we have this forthcoming now to 
I guess it'll be out the next few months in uh, Hastings, which okay. to me is like, that's probably the greatest accomplishment I'll ever have in my uh, career is this. A taxonomy of deception. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. And at, at this place has been rejecting me for like six years. And I, I'm just so <laughs> happy that this is going to be in there and really happy to have Erica as a co-author. listening to this episode of bioethics for the people for more information about the podcast and your wonderful hosts please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com and special thanks to darian golden stall for all the podcast related artwork christopher wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here and cameron swayze for audio engineering support mm-hmm.